0: For those who haven't been here, we've been in Matthew. And Matthew is a Jewish guy writing to a Jewish audience and what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks is he is communicating to these people, Jesus communicating to his disciples that it's more important what's on the inside than what's on the outside. Now we've heard that growing up. We've been taught that. Hopefully somebody taught you along the way. for the Jewish person, this was a big deal because they had focused on external laws. They had focused on purity laws. All the way back in Leviticus, some of these laws could get you killed. Literally killed because you do not follow this cleanliness law. Now, the, the thing that was interesting is just because you were unclean didn't mean you sinned. You could be unclean because you, as a woman, you had a baby. There's nothing sinful about that. But that made you went through a period of uncleanness when, when that happened. If you rubbed up against somebody who was bleeding, you became unclean. That's not sinful. It's just that you became unclean according to the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was given as a picture to the Jewish people to show them that you could not come before God in an unclean manner. And so God was giving them this unfolding picture of what it was like to come before Him and like as a precursor to Christ who would make everybody pure. And so when Christ came, that picture went away. There was no need for the picture anymore. And so the ceremonial law after Christ came was done away with. But it was done away with. And, and the only thing that remains really is the moral law for us. The moral law was given to bring us to Christ before we trusted Christ. And after Christ, it gives us a rail or a set of tracks to run on so that our witness to the world is that we're like Christ. We are different than they are. Because the world does not live according to God's value system. It lives according to the prince of this world's value system. And so we looked at that. We looked at Jesus talking to them about them focusing on the external. And he said, listen, God calls us to focus on the internal spirit and heart change, not the external. He calls us to focus on his word and purity, not not tradition, not ceremony. And so we looked at that in Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Then last week in uh, 21 through uh, the end of the chapter, we looked at... What does faith looks like? What does great faith look like? There was this Canaanite woman, because there were three word pictures or three actual living examples of this principle that he had been teaching them lived out. One was a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman. One, uh, the second was all these Gentiles being healed, and the third was him feeding four thousand Gentile men and their families. All of those people involved were considered dirty, unclean people by the Jewish people. People that they would never want to be around. People that if they were around, they would be considered unclean. And what Jesus was saying in doing this to his disciples was modeling what it was like to to focus on the people on the inside. Because they weren't unclean because of their ethnic background. And you're not unclean today because of your ethnic background. They were just unclean because of anything on their heart. And this Canaanite woman responded when Jesus came into Tyre in the Sidon area. And she said, Jesus, have mercy on me. And he did. And we believe that woman was a woman of faith because she used the Messianic title. Then when he healed all these people and then fed the 4,000, it was almost identical to what happened a few chapters back to the Jewish people. Almost as if to say to the disciples, what I did for my Jewish brothers, I did also for the Gentile brothers. It brought them on an equal playing field to say that we're not second class followers of Jesus just because we're Gentile. We're the same. And we are. There's no no one higher class because of an ethnic background, an economic background, or any other kind of background. We're all on a level playing field at the cross. And that's what Jesus is getting across. And so he goes in, but, but the thing about the woman, he said she had a great faith. And when we saw the healing of all these people, Jesus calls us to a compassionate faith. And then the third, when he fed the 4,000, he calls us to a limitless faith because the disciples had limited him in that that when he said, how are we going to feed them? They said, well, we don't know where to go. Even though he just fed 5,000 people with them three months earlier. So a great faith. A compassionate faith, a limitless faith. Well, today in this chapter in sixteen, and by the way, I do want to say this: when when I'm teaching in here, if I could do what I would really like to do, we would we would divide sixteen up into really probably eight weeks, chapter sixteen, or like Dave said, we would take chapter fifteen and take five to six weeks on chapter fifteen. But because we're kind of constrained by time, and my desire is not to do minute detail teaching, is to do what I call a 50,000 foot view of this passage and to give you enough to where you can then go dig into it yourself and supplement what happens in here. In other words, not just so you're getting a spoon-fed version of chapter 16, but then you can take this and go back and you can get it yourself and let God speak to you individually as I kind of lay out a little bit of an outline for you. And God may give you a completely different outline as you look at it for that passage. But hopefully it will have some of the same similar spiritual principles involved. And so in 16 today, God's revealing five more types of faith. We looked at a great faith. We looked at a compassionate faith. We looked at a limitless faith. And today we're going to look at a self-sufficient faith, which is really no faith at all, is it? Not in Him. A self-sufficient faith means you're only trusting in you. And so it's really no faith. But we're going to call it self-sufficient faith. The second one is a short-sighted faith. That's a kind of faith that looks at the material instead of the spiritual. Because anytime you look at the material, you're thinking here and now. True? This is here and now. So, a short-sighted faith. The third faith is a saving faith. And that's pretty key for us to understand. It's pretty simple in Scripture and we're going to see that. The fourth kind of faith is a selfish faith. I think we're pretty good at that one. Especially in this country of consumption. Selfish faith. What does that mean? That means you have a faith, but you try to get God to... Move his plan to your plan. You try to take God's plan and instead of you fitting your life into his plan, you say, I want you to do it my way. Guilty of that? I am. I am. And then the the fifth kind of faith we're going to look at is a sacrificial faith. This is a faith that says, not my will, but your will be done. So, Chapter 16, I'm going to read it and we'll come back and look at each one of these. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test Him, they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. So you see several words in there that describe the Sadducees and the Pharisees together. Now, this is interesting because they were not friends. They were different groups. The Pharisees were the working class religious leaders. They were the legalist. The Sadducees were the aristocrats. They were the liberal view of Scripture, of their Scripture. They were the ones who were privileged. They they were the ones who uh, the high priest came from. A lot of people think it came from the Pharisees, but it came from the Sadducees. They were the aristocrats. And so these two groups did not get along. In fact, if you remember in the Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul got them fighting against each other about the resurrection. They didn't like each other at all, but they're united against Jesus. They come together because they want to, they really want to discredit Him. It says, He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and he departed. Now, when the disciples reached the other side, They had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus aware of this said, "O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or how many baskets you gather? or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gather? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And that phrase from that time is Matthew's indicator of Jesus moving into a different phase of his ministry. He's now pulling away from the public where when he was in public, he did have a few private times with his disciples, but it was still a public ministry. Now he's withdrawing from public ministry to private ministry to his disciples primarily. He still may have a few public times, but the primary ministry now is just to the disciples. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. May God bless the reading of His Word. When When you hear Jesus dealing with His disciples and dealing with the Pharisees, We have a tendency because we know what happens and we can see back from many, you know, many of us have been in church. We've heard stories before. And we tend to look at the disciples like they are not blind people. And in fact, we don't even think of ourselves as blind very often. But we're all blind. The Pharisees were blind, pagans are blind, believers are blind. We're all blind spiritually. Nobody has spiritual vision apart from Jesus Christ. There are blind people who will never see, and then there are blind people who will see because of Jesus. And what we see laid out here is we see the first group, these Pharisees, they're, not, they're never going to see. They're never going to see for a few reasons. One, because of sin. John 3 says the reason they don't believe is because they love the acts of darkness. They love doing what they do in darkness. They love the dark rather than the light. That's one reason they don't see. Another reason they don't see is 2 Corinthians 4.4 says Satan blinds them. He actually blinds them so they can't see. And the third reason is it's just God's judgment on them, period, for rejecting. They they're, they're not going to respond to the gospel, and for us we have a very hard time with that. The fact that that God would prevent somebody from seeing, you go, why would He do that? It's called judicial blindness. We've talked about it several times in here. It's it's they reject so much that they move from they can they will not believe till they cannot believe, and so the Pharisees fit this category. They're blind. They're never going to see. And their faith is not in Jesus. It will never be in Jesus. It's in themselves. And it's always been in themselves. It's in what they do. It's what they bring to the table. And they're skeptics. And what we've learned as many times as we've gone through them asking, I mean, this is not the first time they've asked for a sign. Back in Matthew 12, they asked for a sign. We saw when we went through the book of John, after feeding 5,000 people, they asked for a sign. Because what they're asking for here is not a miracle like we would think of that kind of sign. What they're saying is they want to see something. It says heaven, but it means like the stars, the sky. They're looking for some kind of astrological miracle to occur. They want to see something up there that would point them. And they're setting a condition because they're skeptics. And skeptics always seek signs. They don't ever see them when they're there. The signs do not produce faith in anybody. The signs merely confirm and affirm for people who are already people of faith, that faith is brewing in them. And the Spirit has to illuminate you seeing that to begin with. Miracles simply confirm faith that's inside of somebody already. So when we think about, I mean, I think about the story in Luke 16. Remember when Lazarus and the rich man, they both died? And the rich man dies and he goes to Hades or goes to hell, I mean, and, um, and eternal punishment. And uh, Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. And they can see each other. They can see what's going on. They have this ability to see across, but there's a big divide between them and they can't cross. And the rich man's going, oh, could you just touch my tongue with, with some water? Just, just give me a little bit of relief. And then he begs, let me go tell my brothers. Let me come back to life. Let me go tell my brothers because they might believe me if I could go tell them. And what, what is the response? If they don't believe the Scriptures, they're not going to believe a ghost. Because belief doesn't come by evidence. Evidence is used by God, but belief comes because the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. It only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. We think sometimes, if we just, if I can just get my friend to see this, boy, he will, he will buy into it. And we spend more time trying to figure out how to make people believe instead of praying that God would open their eyes, praying that God would soften their heart. Because it's a spiritual thing. But these Pharisees, they were self-sufficient in their faith. And that was, they had no faith. And, And we have to ask ourselves. Because we're tempted even after we profess a faith in Christ sometimes to um, be like the Pharisees here and to have a self-sufficient faith. Even though we're believers, even though we understand, we we, we really are probably more like the disciples in that it's short-sighted rather than no belief. We do have belief. It's just more short-sighted like they are. But I think of the Pharisees even, remember when they healed Lazarus? I mean, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, the other Lazarus, he was raised from the dead. It says the Pharisees sought to kill him. A guy who had already, they know, was raised from the dead. They didn't see that as a sign that he was actually raised, been in the tomb four days. There were lots of people. They never denied it, they just wanted to kill him and get him off the scene. Here's the thing about all the miracles. Do you know they never deny the miracles itself? They just deny the source of power for it. They never deny the miracles. In fact, one of the reasons that they want Him to do something is they're trying to discredit Him because people are coming to Him. And when Jesus asks the question, who do people say I am? They say Elijah, who did lots of miracles. Right? Why is that? We're going to see in just a second. Jeremiah and John the Baptist. John the Baptist did no miracles that we know of, but if he had come back from the dead, which is what they were saying when they said it's John the Baptist, then he would be able to do miracles because he came back from the dead. So the disciples, even like us, had this period of time where they looked at the material more than the spiritual and this was one of those times that Jesus brings out because they go and they, they have one loaf of bread according to Mark. This says no bread, but Mark says one loaf of bread. And they're going, we forgot bread. And they're with the bread of life. They're, they're with the one who just fed 4,000 men and their families and three months earlier fed 5,000 men and their families. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five to 50,000 people ate with 12 loaves of bread. Now think about that for a second. They saw it. They witnessed it. And they're going, hey, we didn't bring any bread. Instead of saying, hey, I wonder if Jesus would bless this so it would be more than we need here. Just like He did before. Because what happens is, I think we look and we have this short-sighted faith and we think sometimes, you know, God won't do that for me. God's not going to do it again. He just did that for this. And we don't talk to God about stuff that we care about. We don't ask Him to do things. One, because we might have this secret fear that He won't. Maybe that was why they didn't talk to Him about that. But you know what He says to Him, Because He was the master discipler. And all discipleship is, guys, and anybody, Brad will tell you this, and you know, Brad and I have talked a lot about discipleship. It's not going through a book or a set of, of things that help you become more knowledgeable about Jesus. Discipleship is taking everyday life and getting spiritual principles infused into that. And that's what he does. He takes the fact that they're worried about bread and he talks to them about leaven. Why? Because leaven's in bread. And, and, and leaven was something that every Jew would know about. In fact, they, the reason they didn't have leaven in their bread when they, they celebrated Passover is because it was always symbolic of something evil. Sin. That's why I crack up today at churches that give the communion and they use leavened bread. They miss out on a big teaching point because they didn't want leaven in there because it always symbolized sin. And, And so when Jesus takes this, He says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what He's talking about is beware of the liberalism of the Sadducees. Beware of the legalism of the pharisees and they they don't get it they think he's talking about well don't go buy bread from a pharisee or a sadducee because it'll be unclean and that's not what he was talking about but that's what they're formulating in their mind and he says no i'm not talking about that bread are you so dense did you not remember the 5,000 that I fed, the 4,000 I fed. Do you not remember back on the Sermon on the Mount when I said, don't worry, don't be anxious? I feed the birds. Will I not feed you? Seek first the kingdom of God, he said. He, I, I'm sure we don't get everything he said in this text, right? This is just telling us snippets of what the, the Spirit wanted us to, to see. But he probably was teaching them because the next thing they go, then they understood Why did they understood? Because he explained it to them. But when we have short-sighted faith, we forget that there's an unseen world around us. We get up, whenever time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, most of the influences in our life have to do with the stuff we can touch and feel. And most of the thing that drives our schedule are the things that we can touch and feel. How often do we input things into our life spiritually? do we think about things from a spiritual perspective, an eternal perspective? I think about 2 Kings uh, chapter 6 where Elisha is being pursued by this group of people. They want to kill him. And he's got his servant out there and they're totally surrounded and his servant's freaking out. He's like so upset they're going to die. And Elisha's calm. And he says, Lord... Open up his eyes to see what I see. I don't know that he physically saw them there, but he knew they were there. And, and basically what he was saying, Lord, let him know what I know, that you were in control. And when he opened his eyes, the servant looked and what? There were chariots of fire, people, angels all around them. Do we believe that that same God that does that surrounds us? when that business deal goes south, when your boss is not nice to you, when the spouse is not nice to you, when things are going bad medically, when you get the bad diagnosis, when your kids aren't responding the way you want them to, whatever it is, the physical can grab us that quick and we go into that mode and we don't even think about the spiritual component of what's happening. Psalm 119 18 says, Open my eyes, Lord. Psalm 119 is a great psalm. It has, just to go back there, Psalm 119, 33, teach me, teach me, Lord. Psalm 119, 73, give me understanding. Who gives us all that? It's God. He gives us all that. John 14 and John 16, Jesus in that time right before he goes to the cross is telling his disciples i'm leaving you physically but it's good because the holy spirit will be there he's there for all of us and i think we forget that sometimes don't have short-sighted faith don't have short-sighted faith understand that god wants us to always look to him well he goes on from there and it says, when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you've been up to that area. It's called the Banya's today. It was called Panias back then for the Greek god Pan. It's at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's about 9,000 feet. Um, the, um, there's, a, there's a river feed. That it feeds the Jordan River that flows out of there. And there's a big cave. And that cave had this endless supply of water. And so the Greeks that lived in that area worship the God Pan and they would sacrifice children in this big cave up there. They would uh, It was just a pagan area. And that's where Jesus is when this is going on and He says, who do people say I am? And they say, well, John the Baptist. Why? Because if John the Baptist came back to life, that would explain the miracles. Elijah. Well, if Elijah was there, he's another pre-runner to, to the Messiah. And if he came back, that would explain the miracles. Jeremiah, now Jeremiah, I didn't really understand why. See, Elijah's talked about in Malachi chapter four. Jeremiah's not talked about in our Bible as being a pre-runner to the Messiah coming back, but there was a tradition among the Jews, and it's based on uh, an apocryphal book called Second Maccabees, that uh, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant and the temple, uh, the altar, and took them away before the pagans came in and destroyed the temple. And the rumor was that he was gonna bring them back before Messiah came. So that's why they said Jeremiah. But then they say other prophets. So all these people that they're bringing back have two things in common. One, they were taken off the face of the earth or they died. And now they have come back in the people's minds. And they were a pre-runner to the Messiah. So that would explain the, the miracles that would explain everything and so Jesus takes that question that we all have to deal with of who do people say I am and he says who do you say I am who am I to you and I think for us that's a big question we've got to wrestle with because in our culture and our attitude today with Jesus is what we see a lot with what happens with him and Peter next and you know when before I go into the part where Peter is selfish let me talk about what he says that's right because it says flesh and blood did not reveal this to you Peter this is from God and what does he say you are the Christ you are the Messiah you are the one that we're waiting for you are the one that will bring redemption to my life if you go back and you look at all those Old Testament prophecies about what Messiah would bring when Peter says you are the Christ he's saying you fulfill all those things there's a lot there in that statement. For us, it's just you are the Christ, but it entails every Old Testament prophecy about what God was going to do for His people. <clears throat> you are the Christ. And He says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. This is from God, Peter. This is from God. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says that God reveals stuff to us that you don't come to it on your own. God has to reveal it. And Romans 10 says, if we confess with our mouth, believe with our heart, that's what Peter's doing here. He believes it. Now, does he he struggle? Yeah. Does he deny Christ a short time later? Yes. But ultimately, and for you golfers, Brad, you'll appreciate this because I'm so thankful that this is God's philosophy. It's not how you drive. It's how you arrive. Isn't that great? That that's applicable to our spiritual life? Because it doesn't matter how you start off. Listen, there's guys in this room, including me, got off to a pretty rough start. I sliced pretty bad at the beginning of my life. It was pretty bad. It was OB a couple of times, okay? And what God did is he he brought healing, he brought mercy, He brought knowledge. He brought people into my life that helped me learn how to keep the ball on the fairway. And I praise Him that it's not how you start off, that it's how you finish. And did Peter finish well? He absolutely did. He absolutely did. He finished well. Saving faith is when we come to a personal knowledge that Jesus reveals to us. Not to us as a group, to us individually. And so you're not a believer because you go to some church. You're not a believer because you were baptized when you were a baby. You're not a believer because you've been baptized as an adult. None of those things make you a believer. You're a believer when you come to a personal revelation of Jesus revealing to you that He was God's Son, the living God's Son, who was Messiah, who came to pay for your sins and to make you right with God. When you believe that, then you're part of the church He talks about here. You're part of the Petra that He talks about. Not Peter's Petros, He's talking about Petros. And people have misinterpreted that because it doesn't mean that Peter was the rock. It wasn't Peter. It was the idea that He was the Christ. On that rock, he built his church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. it, is what he's saying. And when he says, whatever you loose on earth or whatever you bind on earth, all he's saying there is, you have the authority of God behind you, because he's already loosed it in heaven and you're acting on his behalf. That's what that means. So, Doug, real quick, when he says, and I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church. That this rock is himself. Yes. It's the, it's, the, it's the idea that he's the Christ. He says, Blessed are you, okay. Petros. Okay. It's, it's like, at a boy, you ever told your kid, Man, that was awesome. Yeah. That's what he's saying. That's, that's awesome. You got it, Peter. And it's Petros. Yeah. And he says, I'm building on Petra. And if you know, the word Petros means a small stone. Peter's name means small stone. And what does Peter say in his letter? That we are living stones. We are living stones to tell people about Jesus Christ. We're a royal priesthood. So the misinterpretation is that he's, he's saying to Peter that you're the rock. That's that, that, a misinterpretation. It is a misinterpretation. Yeah, okay. Peter's not the rock. Yeah, okay. Peter, the rock is the idea that Jesus is Messiah. And Peter, and what's so great is right on the heels of what he does. We know Peter's not the rock because what does he do? That'll never happen to you, Lord. I mean, and so we see he moves right from saving faith into selfish faith. Why? Because it's an immature faith. It's still growing, but it's selfish. Here's the thing Proverbs 14 12 says, that that man thinks he knows the way but our way leads what to death isaiah 55 says his ways are not my ways they're not and and so when we have faith in god we we trust god and he's asking us to bring our will in accordance to his will The problem is everything in our world says, especially our culture here says, everything we've been taught. Think about everything that you've been taught in the American church growing up. Really, it's about getting instead of giving. It really is when you stop and think about it. Come and get Jesus in your life. You've got to get this and everything's going to be right. It's about getting, not giving. It's about consumption instead of compassion. It's it's somehow morphed into this message that, that that it's about getting reward before you get sacrifice. It's about getting glory before you suffer. It's about suffering being taken away. And that's simply not true. It's not true. It is a perversion of this message. Peter had been taught that Messiah was going to come. He was going to set everything right. So when Jesus says, hey, i got to go suffer and die, He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not right. And Jesus says, get behind me. Your plan is not the plan of God. Satan's been trying to do this back since out in the desert to thwart this plan. And He tells him, get behind This is not right, Peter. It's not the plan of God. Your mind is on the things of man and I got I got a question that we have to wrestle with where do we spend the majority of our time thinking about our own will is it in really subjection to God or is it in subjection to what we want to do and we ask God to come along and bless it I remember a great illustration one time Uh, I came remember who shared it out in Texas this pastor was talking about how in uh, England they have what's called a parliamentary monarchy when they Parliament gets together and they pass a a law they send it up to the Queen to sign it if she doesn't sign it guess what it still goes into effect because the Queen is Queen in name only we do the same thing with God we come up with our plan we take it to God Say, God, bless this man. I want to follow your will. God says, no, I don't want you to do that. And we do it anyway. He is an absolute monarch for us as believers. It is, it is not an option for us. If we're His, it's not an option. What His plan is, is the plan that we should want. As painful as it is, no matter what it entails... We have to say, yes, God, not my will, but Thy will be done. Or it's just selfish faith. And then finally, the last thing is sacrificial faith. He tells us, He just expounds on that. This is what I'm looking for, Peter. If anyone's going to come after me, they got to deny themselves. they got to take up their cross, follow me. Two ways to live. Romans 12:1 says it. Hey, what? We are living sacrifices not conformed to the image of the world. Paul talks about it in Philippians. He says, I count everything as rubbish. Everything else is rubbish in my life except for the saving what power and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to share in His suffering, he goes on to say. Galatians 2.20, Paul says it again. I'm crucified with Christ. Not I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. These all deal with the same issue. These two ways to live. We deny ourselves or we live for ourselves. It's a choice. We take up our cross or we ignore the cross. Follow Christ or follow the world. We lose our life or we save our life for ourselves. We lose it for him or save it for ourselves. Forsake the world or we gain the world. Keep our soul Or lose our soul? We share in His reward or glory? Or we lose His reward or glory? See, the issue is, do we really believe? That's what faith really comes down to. Do we really believe this says what it is and it is what it is? Do we believe it enough to where it impacts our life on a daily basis? Because if that's true, then we'll sacrifice before reward. Because that's what Jesus taught. Suffer before glory and we'll put a cross before the crown that's what he wants so let's ask ourselves these two questions as we leave do we really trust God or do we place more faith in our own ability and are we living out a life of sacrificial faith which is basically God's will not my will that's what we have to wrestle with and when we realize that we have not been doing that What we do is we come back to the cross, we confess it, we repent and say, God, help me, help me to run your race that you've set for me, not the race that I want to run. Because I can tell you, if I could choose my race, there's quite a few things I'd pop out of my life right now. And there's a lot of other things I'd probably add in. But that's not what he has for me. And I told Brad yesterday or two days ago, I said, you could take a hundred billion dollars and put it right in front of me in suitcases right now. All the money that George Soros has, all the money that Bill Gates has, all the money that, that all these very, very ultra wealthy people have and lay it down here and say, will you give up your faith in Jesus Christ for that money? And I'd say, no, I won't. I will not do it. And I had this thought, Brad, when I was going home, I thought, you know, I wouldn't do it for that. So why on a daily basis do I make the mistakes I do where I make that sacrifice every day? It's because I I, I don't consider those little bitty bins as bad as a complete denial. And that's part of the issue. So, Danny, will you close our time in prayer?